0: Secret can you keep it sweet this one you'll let a lock it in your pot get taken this one to the grave in the show the no you won't tell what
1: I said Cause to get keep a secret there's one of them is dead This episode is sponsored by Trails Clothing Head on over to trailsclothing.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 15% off your purchase. Trails Clothing is inspired by music and art. A little bit of Southern style with that rock and roll flair. Head on over to trailsclothing.com and check out all they have to offer. Again, that is trailsclothing.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 15% off your purchase. I'm missing being able to hold her
0: and cuddle her and just say everything's all right. And I just want her back where well, she is. Jo, my little Joe, come back. And if she has got her, don't, don't keep her. Give her back to us. <laughs> we miss her so much. I know that's obvious. And nobody can feel the pain that we feel. But we want to thank. Obviously, everyone who's been helping us, our know, school friends, our best friends, our college friends, they've just...
1: Mad. Hi friends, I hope you're having a wonderful day when you stumble upon this episode. If this is your first time tuning in, hi there, my name's Harmony and I'm your host. Welcome to this week's episode of What the Actual F. So what exactly am I going to tell you about today? For this episode, we are going to head over across the pond. We are heading to Bristol. Bristol is a city with a vibrant youth culture and extremely friendly vibes. Just look at me talking as if I've been there. I haven't. I just read to you exactly what the internet tells me. Apparently it's often won awards as being the best city in the UK. The city is close to the countryside and to the sea, so apparently there's just a lot of fun things to do throughout the year. So although I have never been to Bristol to see it for my own, it seems as though it is a fascinating city located in England's West Country region. So now that you know where our tale takes place, let's go to when. On December 17th in 2010, 25-year-old architect Joanna Yates was gearing up to spend her first Christmas together with her boyfriend, Greg Reardon. The couple both worked at architectural firms and were living together in the Clifton area of Bristol. At the time, Greg had went away for the weekend to visit relatives in Sheffield. Joanna decided to go out that Friday night for a drink at the Ram Pub in Bristol's Park Street with some colleagues and friends. You know, because who wants to sit at home and do nothing? Not Joanna. However, when Greg returned home just a few days later on December 19th, and there seemed to be no sign of his girlfriend in their apartment or flat, for those of you who listened to me across the pond, he immediately got worried and reported Joanna missing. This is the case of Joanna Yates. Well, this is even more heartbreaking and
0: distressing, being at a time of year when so many of us are getting ready to spend time with our relatives. Instead, the parents of Joe Yates, have found themselves caught up in this mystery of what exactly has happened to their daughter. Both of them, her boyfriend Greg and her friends have been doing all that they can this week to try and find her, to try and raise awareness that she's gone missing. There are posters on every lamppost along this street. There's a website that's been set up. For all of them though, Christmas really is on hold until they
1: find Jo. She was happy. She was pretty and successful. Just three words that many people who didn't even know Joanna Yates would use to describe her. However, after Joanna went missing on December 17th in 2010, it wouldn't be long before her face was on the cover of nearly every tabloid newspaper across the UK. And with that, the British public were quick to find out every single detail of the 25 year old's life now joanna wouldn't be the type that you'd expect to just up and disappear she was sensible she had a good job she was a landscape architect and she didn't drink or do excessive drugs she had an extremely supportive family and a steady relationship with her boyfriend greg reardon he was 27 at the time She had been with Greg for about two years. By October of 2010, the couple had been living together for roughly a year. Craig and Joanna moved with their pet cat into a new flat together. They moved into 44 Kenyage Road in Clifton. This is a suburb of Bristol. All in all, life was looking fantastic for Joanna. This would bring us to Friday, December 17th, the last day of Joanna's life.
0: Someone I enjoyed time with. Someone who inspired me to do perhaps more unusual things than than other people do or that I would have done. Joe is like a breath of fresh air, really. Generally happy, buoyant. Very, very positive.
1: It was nearing Christmas and the atmosphere was festive now christmas was joanna's favorite time of the year however during this time greg was away visiting family in sheffield he was only planning to be gone for the weekend so that friday evening joanna decided to join a few colleagues from work for a few drinks she then left the ram pub at around eight o'clock that night to begin her walk home this walk was roughly about 20 minutes from the bar to her apartment or for all of you across the pond, it was about a 20 minute walk from the pub to the flat. Oh my God, I think I butchered that. Uh, Let's continue. On her way home, CCTV footage would show her going into a Waitrose supermarket, but she would leave without having bought anything. Then at 8.30, she called her friend Rebecca to arrange a meetup on Christmas Eve. Joanna was seen on surveillance footage around 8.40 at Tesco Express. This is where she bought a pizza. She then went to an off-license bargain booze and bought two bottles of cider. Now let's fast forward to the day that Greg returned home. Greg returned to their flat where he found the cat which appeared to have been not fed. This is unusual, but even more unusual is there was no sign of Joanna. He then called her phone, which he heard ringing inside of her coat pocket the coat that was in the apartment. He then discovered her purse, her glasses, and her keys. Around 12 o'clock in the morning on December 18th, he became very concerned. And this is when he reported Joanna missing to the police and Joanna's parents. Now, at the flat or apartment that the two shared, the investigators would find a receipt for the pizza that Joanna had purchased. Oddly enough, though, the pizza packaging was nowhere to be found, suggesting that she didn't eat it. But the pizza was also nowhere to be found. The bottles of cider were both found, however. One was partially consumed while the other was unopened. There were also no signs of forced entry, no signs of a disturbance having taken place inside the apartment either. Investigators also examined Greg's laptop and his mobile phone as part of the standard protocol. You guys know if someone goes missing, they always look at the partner. However, nothing incriminating was found. So where was Joanna Yates? And where the fuck did the pizza go?
0: One thing he did do was make contact with the police while he was out of the country. I certainly cannot say that um, I saw Joanna Yates that evening, no. He kept in contact with his partner and sent what is now a particularly pertinent text to her at a time when Joe would have been dead.
1: This brings us to December 21st. No more clues as to what happened to Joanna, or where she was, had been discovered. Her parents, David and Teresa, made an emotional plea during a press conference. This is where they voiced their disbelief at her sudden disappearance. It was extremely unlike Joanna to just vanish. She had a job. She had a relationship, a strong relationship nonetheless with a partner who genuinely seemed to love her. During this emotional plea, her parents asked that Joanna please get in touch with them. They also expressed that their love for her and their concern for her was all for her safety. They just wanted to know that she was okay. They wanted her back. And this is where I tell you, they were about to discover Joanna, but sadly, not in the way that they were hoping. By December 23rd, Joanna's family and Craig were becoming increasingly convinced that the worst may have happened. Joanna had been missing at this point for six days. Her father David would even go on to express his fears that maybe Joanna had been abducted from her apartment when she was returning home that evening. Then on Christmas Day, their nightmare was confirmed. A couple was out walking their dog that morning along Longwood Lane, roughly about four miles away from Joanna's apartment in Clifton. They discovered a body on the side of the road, which was clothed and covered in snow. On the 26th, it was confirmed that the body belonged to Joanna. Her post-mortem examination also began that very day. However, the results would be delayed due to Joanna's body being frozen. By the 28th, the pathologist determined that the cause of Joanna's death was due to strangulation. There was no evidence that Joanna had been sexually assaulted, which is a massive sigh of relief. Because more often than not, in these cases where a woman is found dead, they are often assaulted before or even gruesomely after their death. Joanna, however, was fully clothed. But she was not wearing a coat and she had one sock missing. Now you guys may recall just where her coat was, in her apartment, along with her phone. The sock that was missing, however, was a long gray ski sock. It was not found in her apartment or anywhere near her body when it was discovered this sock would become an important part in the investigation. I mean, that and also the pizza. Where the fuck is the pizza? Nonetheless, detectives believe that the killer may have kept this sock as a trophy. So, who killed Joanna? Would you like to meet the suspects? Because here we go.
0: I had come to a point where One of the flats that I let out um, for retirement income became vacant. Um, The the very first day that it was advertised, uh, two of the prospective tenants turned out to be Joe Yates and Greg Reardon. I liked them very much. Absolutely nothing at all about them which was unattractive. I liked both of them. They were young, enthusiastic, anxious to set up home together for the first time, and I was very pleased to be able to give them the opportunity to do exactly that in what they obviously thought was an ideal place for them.
1: First up is the landlord, Christopher Jeffries. He was a 65-year-old retired English teacher at a local private school called Clifton College. He was also well-known in the community. Chris was Joanna and Greg's landlord and lived in the flat just above them. He was active in the local Liberal Democrats, helped out in the election campaigns, and was also heavily involved in the Neighborhood Watch. Now, Chris was known to also be somewhat of an eccentric character, sometimes even making bold statements. Even being called Odd for dyeing his hair blue. Oh shit, if they judge people by changing their hair color, just wait till they found out that I've had every color of the rainbow. If dyeing your hair is making a statement, then boy am I screaming. Former students would go on to describe Chris as being unconventional, but a very inspiring teacher. So why exactly would they involve their landlord in the investigation? What would make him suspicious? Well, he became involved in the murder investigation of Joanna when he was questioned over claims that he made about neighbors or about somebody being seen there. He stated that he saw three people when he drove up outside of Joanna's place. This was around nine o'clock on the night that Joanna disappeared. The neighbors would tell investigators that Chris had said that he had seen Joanna. However, Chris claimed and clarified that he had not specifically seen Joanna. What he actually saw and not what the neighbor had stated he saw was simply three people outside. Now, if you look into the case, It's kind of tough to find out what exactly was so incriminating about this landlord. Besides the fact that he said something about seeing people outside of her apartment, there's not really a lot that's just like sketchy about him. I mean, he really kind of seems like a cool guy. However, he would end up being arrested on suspicion of the murder of Joanna. This would happen early in the morning on December 30th in 2010. Now of course, in any case that is being followed by the media, the moment an arrest occurs, the media has a field day. And Chris Jeffries was no exception to the rule. There really was no other reason for this other than the fact that Chris was, I guess admittedly, odd looking and definitely a bit eccentric, as was already claimed. But you can't go around arresting people and accusing them of murder because they don't fit your social idea of the norm. But according to The Guardian, the unspoken assumption was that no one could look that odd and be innocent. The headlines really did batter this man. With The Sun on a cover stating the strange Mr. Jeffries, kid's nickname for ex-teacher suspect. Another, The Daily Mirror, Another cover stating Joe's landlord a creep who freaked out schoolgirls. This poor man was just being verbally assaulted and drugged through the mud publicly. There were really no shortage of range of defamatory headlines that were being splashed across the front pages all over the UK about Christopher Jeffries. And in all the while, in reality, police actually didn't even have the killer. You see, after being questioned by detectives for two days, Chris was released on bail on January 1st in 2011. Understandably, once he was no longer a suspect in this murder investigation, he sued eight different UK newspapers with his lawyer having this to say about the matter. Christopher Jeffries is the latest victim of regular witch hunts and character assassinations conducted by the worst elements of the British tabloid media. He did receive substantial damages in regards to what he experienced. This was paid to him from the papers as well as a public apology from the police. I'm not saying that makes it okay. In fact, I do agree that we as media and society do attack a lot of people before they are proven to even be guilty. So his lawyer is absolutely right. In this day and age, we have our very own forms of a witch hunt. It's the media. So are you ready to find out the actual killer of Joanna Yates? Because I'm ready to tell you.
0: Neighbors remember Vincent Tabak as a quiet, pleasant, somewhat private boy, the youngest of four children. Just an ordinary guy as yeah, 100 other guys can be. A little bit introvert uh, to himself. Uh, yeah, I would say introvert.
1: Vincent Tabak, or Tabak, however you would like to pronounce it, was a 32-year-old Dutch national who was working in Bristol as an engineer. He lived in the apartment or flat right next door to Joanna and Greg. He lived with his girlfriend, Tanja Morsen. Police would end up knocking on his door around 4 a.m. on December 18th. This was just after Greg had reported Joanna missing. Vincent was asked if he knew anything about Joanna's disappearance. Of course, this shocked and stunned half-asleep neighbor said he did not. Then on the 23rd, police would search his apartment. He was extremely cooperative and nothing of interest for the investigation was found during this search. So it was seeming as though Vincent had no clue honestly what had happened to his neighbor. Vincent and Tanja would travel to Cambridge to stay with her family on the 24th. Remember, it's Christmas time and everyone's with their family. That same day, Vincent spoke to a detective on the phone. He let them know that he had been in at his house that evening, the very night that Joanna went missing. He said he stayed home until he went to pick up his girlfriend early in the morning on the 18th, after a little night out. He also told them that he did not actually know Joanna. He simply lived there with his girlfriend. And on that night, he was doing what a good boyfriend does, picking her up after she went out and had some fun. You know, so she's safe and doesn't have to drive. This brings us to the 28th. Vincent and his girlfriend drove to Holland via the Eurotunnel. They did this in order to head over to his family for New Year's. The two watched a news report while in Holland about the fact that Christopher had been arrested that day on suspicion of Joanna's murder. So, when Vincent sees that Christopher has been arrested for Joanna's murder, he immediately sees an opportunity to frame Chris. This also turned out to be where he made his biggest mistake. You see, he then turns around and calls detectives and gives them some information because he had learned that Chris was arrested, which means, hmm, he needs to plant a seed. He indicated that Christopher had actually gone out a number of times the night that Joanna disappeared, saying that he saw Chris's car facing in different directions at different points over the course of the evening. A detective flew out to Holland the next day to speak with Vincent for roughly six hours. During the encounter, Vincent began to appear kinda suspicious. He started changing his versions of what he believed had happened that night. He would say that he was going to pick up his girlfriend, but he also would say that he went out to take photos of the snow and that he went to this place called Asda. I don't know what that is, but he says he went there. He also appeared overly curious about the forensic examinations and what had already taken place. At the request of the police, he gave a DNA sample and was fingerprinted. Upon their return to the UK on January 2nd in 2011, Vincent was probably shaking in his fucking boots. At this point, he was pretty sure he was gonna be arrested. However, it wasn't until the early hours of the 20th of January, when Vincent got a knock on his door and he was arrested for the murder of Joanna Yates. Due to that forensic testing that he was so curious about, it had revealed that Vincent's DNA was present on Joanna's body. Vincent insisted that the DNA results were faked and that this was all a part of corruption in the officials because they were just trying to frame him. However, after very little time, he he let that go. It seemed as though Vincent's, oh no, it wasn't me, I was framed, angle just wasn't working for him. On January 22nd, after days of questioning by detectives, Vincent was charged with the murder of Joanna. On February 8th, he admitted to a prison chaplain that he had in fact killed her. On May 5th, 2011, Vincent pled guilty to manslaughter. But, he denied the murder charges. I mean, potato, potato. You ended somebody's life. They died by your hands. Be it physically or metaphorically, the person ceased to exist and you played a role in it. I mean, I don't know about you, but that just seems like murder. Anyways, his plea of manslaughter was rejected and it was determined that he would be tried for murder. This would occur in October of 2011.
0: He went back to work on the Monday. He was talking to people about the disappearance of his neighbor.
1: The trial for Joanna Yates' murder began on October 10th, 2011. This was done in front of a jury and Mr. Justice Field, throughout the investigation and into the trial, Vincent would go on to maintain that he did not know how Joanna had sustained all the injuries. And when I say all the injuries, I mean that there were 43 in total to her neck, torso, head, and arms. But wouldn't you know, Mr. Vincent had no idea how the fuck they had gotten there. The prosecution spoke on vincent's intention to kill joanna they stated when he entered her apartment that night it was no accident it was claimed that vincent applied sufficient force in order to strangle her in other words he could have stopped at any point but he did not now vincent had a defense His defense was that killing wasn't sexually motivated. In fact, he had no intentions of killing her. He stated that she had made a quote, flirty comment and invited him over for a drink at her place. Of course, once he was inside, he tried to kiss her and suddenly she screamed. To stop her from screaming and making everyone aware that he was being a creep, He put his hand over her mouth. He removed his hand, but she continued to scream. So he put his hand back over her mouth and the other around her throat. And he just held it there. Unintentionally, of course. And it caused her to die. He just didn't want her screams to be heard. Makes sense. No, 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 it doesn't. He then states that he bundled her body into the boot of his car, a.k.a. the trunk. He drove to Asda, which is also where he said he had already gone earlier. Remember, when he was changing his story constantly? So at least he was honest about that. This is where he bought a beer and some crisp. He texted his girlfriend to say that he was, quote, bored. You know, because killing is just so boring. He then drove to Longwood Lane and dumped Joanna's body. Which would be discovered, as we know, on Christmas Day. Upon hearing everything during the trial, the jury had its work cut out for them. They deliberated for three days, and they would find Vincent guilty of Joanna's murder. Vincent was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years. During his sentencing, Mr. Justice Field spoke of a sexual element. He believed that though she wasn't assaulted, it definitely played a part in the killing of Joanna. During the trial, the jury did not hear of violent pornography, which Vincent did watch and consume, as it had been found on his computer before the murder. Details of this came out after the trial was over. Also after the trial, it was found that Vincent also possessed a hundred pornographic images of children. Yeah, the man's a fucking pedophile. I don't care who the fuck you are, I hate pedophiles. If that offends you, then I probably don't like you. And your opinion does not matter to me. Because if you sympathize or feel bad for anyone who is a pedophile, please do not listen to my podcast. But to everyone else who also hates pedophiles, here's a crisp high five for you. I just high-fived myself for you. Nonetheless, Vincent was charged and sentenced to 10 more months in prison. Seriously, I fucking hate pedophiles.
0: Vincent Tabak was very unusual. He was very organised, very calm and very rational, in that he's not caught up in the horror of the moment, as everyone else would be. Vincent Tabak was spoken to for the first time by the police as a result of that call, when they came round to take details, treating it as it was at that time, as a missing person inquiry.
1: Now before I say my goodbyes and close out this episode, I want to leave you with a little happy warm and fuzziness. Some good news. A memorial garden was planted where Joanna previously worked to celebrate her memory. At the time that Joanna was murdered, she was actually designing a garden for the new Southmead Hospital. Plans were also made to have a memorial put for Joanna in this garden. Now, even though Vincent was convicted for Joanna's murder, her father David says that their family doesn't feel as though closure has been brought. Let me go ahead and quote David. I never realized that Joe had such an impact on other people and that really gives me an enormous amount of pride. She died when she was 25 and it would have been interesting to see what she might have achieved if she had lived another 25 years. My heart goes out to the Yates family and all that were affected by the loss and horrible murder of Joanna. I do hope that one day her family, her parents David and Teresa, do feel some sense of closure, knowing that Vincent is behind bars. It doesn't bring Joanna back, but it does keep him, from doing this to somebody else and sometimes that is the only justice that some people will ever know it's always fun to remember special times and the happiest memories of all are the ones we share with the
0: friends we love I love you you love me we're a happy family with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you, won't you say you love me too?
1: Okay friends, we're here. This is the end of the episode. The time where I tell you thank you. Thank you for coming here and supporting me and listening to these strange tales that I have to tell you every week. Hearing the dark and disturbing world that we live in, all the things that happen in the shadows are right here for you every week on What the Actual Left, where I, your host Harmony, will bring them to light. I hope you enjoyed this episode from across the pond. Sorry, um, I'm going to stop saying that mainly because the episode's about to end, so like, I kind of have to. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that, and I look forward to meeting here with you next week to tell you another tale from around the world. I do have one question that remains in the case of Joanna Yates. Where the hell did the pizza go? Anyways, guys, I'll talk to you next week on the next episode of What the Actual F. Stay safe, and until next time, I love you guys.